as a person begins to try to think about some of the lessons that you would want to preach and teach, it seems like this time of year we all want to have a big pot of stew of some kind. And uh, in thinking about some lessons, I want to emphasize one from the Old Testament from 2 Kings chapter 4. The truth is, the Bible is literally filled with great lessons. We could spend years studying through the Bible and never cover the same topic or the same idea. There's so many places in the Bible, particularly the Old Testament, where there are accounts that you can learn a great lesson from. And the Bible teaches us to do this. In Romans 15 and verse 4, For whatsoever things were written aforetime were written for our learning, that we through patience and comfort of the Scriptures might have hope. There's a lot to learn from them. There's an admonition found there, 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 11. But the key is to see the principles that are to be learned from these great events of the Bible. You know, it's not as if you just read through and you read and see something that happened, but you've got to see that there are, there's lessons, there's principles that God expects us to take away from our study of these passages. One of the portions of Scripture which, to me, personally, is so colorful is the section of what is sometimes called the former prophets. During the time of Elijah and Elisha, there's so many things with regards to their life that really have some great detail within it. And so this morning we're going to consider 2 Kings chapter 4, verses 38 through 40. And we're going to look at three things. We're going to look, first of all, at the setting in which this occurred There's going to be a situation that is developed, and it's valuable to see the background behind it. We're going to see the solution that Elisha provided to the problem that developed. That's in verse 41. And then we're going to search for the application for you and I to live by in our lives today. Elisha was a prophet somewhere around 850 to 800 B.C., He lived during a time of what we call the divided kingdom. You had the northern kingdom, Israel, that had followed Jeroboam and those kings that were often wicked. You had the southern kingdom, Judah, along with Benjamin, that followed the Davidic line, the descendants of David. Elisha had formerly been an assistant to Elijah. You see, Elijah was that great prophet who challenged Ahab on Mount Carmel, 1 Kings chapter 18. It was Elisha that traveled with Elijah trying to learn what it meant to be a real prophet and how it meant to serve God. And he wanted to even just have a portion of that, but he got a double portion of his ability. What I think is remarkable about Elisha is all the miracles that God allowed Elisha to perform. For instance, we'll look at in just a few moments the purifying of the water at Jericho. It was bad water and he purified it for them. He multiplied the widow's oil, one of the sons of the prophets. Her husband died and she didn't have anything and so... 
Elisha multiplied her oil to be able to provide for her sustenance. There was a Shunammite woman who had prepared a room for Elisha and her son died. Elisha raised him from the dead. You all remember about Naaman the leper. We'll look at him in just a few moments as well. How Naaman was a leper in the Syrian army and because of the instructions of Elisha, his leprosy was washed away. One that I've often found interesting is a man borrowed a fellow man's axe. The head fell off into the water and I don't know what am I going to do. I've got to give him back his axe head. And so Elisha was able to make the axe head float in the water. A lot of good, interesting detail. But the one we want to concentrate on this morning is the miracle of a poison pot of stew. And uh, to look at the little bit of the details, let me give you a background of what's going on. We learn here from the text in verse 38 that he has gone to Gilgal. There's evidently at least three schools of the prophets. And someone said, well, what is a school of a prophet? Well, that's where you go to learn how to be a prophet. Just like Brother Aaron this last summer graduated from the Memphis School of Preaching, there was a school at Gilgal, and these sons of the prophets would go there and would learn from men like Elijah and like Elisha. And they learned what it meant to be a great servant of God. During this period of time, there was a famine, and food became very scarce. Famines happen frequently in the Bible lands. Many times there was a drought, and if there was a drought, food wouldn't grow. And when food wouldn't grow, they would have to scour the land, almost anywhere they could go, to try to be able to find food to eat. So one of the students was sent out, and he came and he found some wild gourds. These wild gourds here are known as cola scents or bitter apples, or apples of Solomon. I thought it might be helpful to show you a picture of some of them growing. And if you look at it, I know what many of you are thinking, exactly what I thought. Those look like watermelons, especially for a boy from Alabama. Uh, you, you just you see that and you think, those look like watermelons. But they're not this big. They're about this big. They're small. And inside is not a beautiful ripe red fruit to be eaten, but is a white inside, more nearly resembling a pear with a lot of seeds in it. The big difference is here, though, is this is a purgative. Now, I'm looking at a doctor who probably knows what Serpavipakek, for some of you parents who've had children maybe ingest something they weren't supposed to ingest, something to make them throw up. That's what this fruit does. And uh, it's not the kind of thing that you want to put in a, uh, a pot of stew and serve to everybody. And so as they began to eat, they said there's death in the pot. My guess is, is that what happened is, is everybody began to eat and they began to go throw up and there's death in the pot. There's poison in it. In fact, you can eat enough of it, it will kill you. 
so you can understand the setting of what's going on. Now, the solution was to go to the man of God. Elisha had already demonstrated himself as a man who had God's divine power given to him. He had solved many problems in the past. I've already made reference to several of the miracles that he performed, but let me just draw attention to a couple of these. First of all, the water at Jericho. We read in 2 Kings chapter 2, verses 19 through 22, the men of the city said to Elisha, please notice the situation of the city is pleasant as my Lord sees, but the water is bad and the ground is barren. And he said, bring me a new bowl and put salt in it. So they brought it to him. And then he went out to the source of the water and cast the salt there and said, Thus says the Lord, I have healed the water from it. it. There shall be no more death or barrenness. So the water remains healed to this day according to the word of Elisha which he spoke. I want you to notice particularly what we find in this in verse 21. Thus says the Lord. The power was not in Elisha. The power was not in the salt. The power was not in the bowl. The power was in God. Elisha was just the instrument in God's hands. Elisha did what God said. Thus says the Lord. In other words, It's not Elisha's prescription, it's God's prescription, and it healed the waters. I want you to notice a second illustration. The solution, the power of God for the healing of Naaman the leper came from the power of God, and yet it was so simple. If you go to 2 Kings chapter 5, verse 1, Now Naaman, the commander of the army of the king of Syria, was a great and honorable man in the eyes of his master, because by him the Lord had given victory to Syria. He was also a mighty man of valor, but a leper. Now when you read further, you realize that Obviously, the king of Syria wanted him to be okay, and so he sends him to the king of Israel because he hears there's someone there who can heal him. And ultimately, he is sent to Elisha the prophet. Verse 10, And Elisha sent a messenger to him, saying, Go wash in the Jordan seven times, and your flesh shall be restored to you. And you shall be clean. But Naaman became furious and went away and said, Indeed, I said to myself, He will surely come out to me, stand and call on the name of the Lord his God, and wave his hand over the place and heal the leprosy. You see, he had in his mind, Oh, it needs to be done this way or that way. He's going to go on and say, Are not the rivers of Abana and Farpar greater than this We put it, dirty Jordan River. The power was not in Elisha. The power was not in the Jordan. The 
The power was in doing what God said to do through the prophet Elisha. Oh, you see, the solution here that is going to be put forth is put flour in the pot. And then they were able to eat it. Hmm. Doing what the prophet of God says to do is a solution. Now, for just a few minutes, I want to spend the remainder of our time talking about searching for an application. And when you start looking at this incident, you start realizing there's a lot of great lessons here. And the first one, and I think perhaps the most obvious to us is, good intentions do not guarantee success. I want you to think of that young prophet, son of a prophet really, student at the school of the prophets, is sent out to gather some kind of herbs, some kind of vegetables to put in the stew. Did he go out with an idea that I'm going to get those guys, I'm going to put some bad stuff in there? No. He went out because he was going to eat it himself. He went out with the idea, I need to go find something good. Do you realize that the Bible teaches us that we can think we are doing correctly when we're not? Listen to Proverbs chapter 14 and verse 12. There is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. Oh, you mean there's a way that could appear to be right? Yes. You look at verse 15. The simple believes every word, but the prudent considers well his steps. Ah, I start seeing, you know, a simple person just says, hey, whatever. An uninformed, uneducated person says, oh, well, anything will do. If you'll remember 2 Samuel chapter 6, David was having the Ark of the Covenant transported to Jerusalem He wanted it to be done so in a very um, prestigious way. So what he does, he has a brand new cart prepared, new oxen that had never had to pull a cart before, put before it. He has a man by the name of Uzzah and another guy driving the cart by the name of Ohio. And uh, as the ark is being transported, you learn here in verse 6 that the oxen stumbled And Uzzah puts out his hand to steady that ark. Now, did he do so because he's like, oh, I'm going to touch it or I'm going to just, you know, be all over myself? No. He wanted to protect the ark of the covenant from falling. But you look at verse 7, then the anger of the Lord was aroused against Uzzah and God struck him there for his error and he died there by the ark of God. Did he believe that he was doing something that was wicked and vile? No, he didn't believe that. He thought he was doing what was good. You think about that for just a moment. There is no substitute for the knowledge of the truth. There's no substitute. 
You have to realize when you're dealing with something that is serious, potentially dangerous, you need to know what you're doing. Perhaps a good illustration for us today would be how you might deal with something like electricity. If you go into the basement in this building here, there's a huge panel down there. Electrical wires run into it, scatters all through this building. There's a very large covering over that so that you can't put your hand in there. I would not dare take that cover off and start messing around inside there. You know why? That's dangerous. I don't know what I'm doing. I could potentially kill myself. And if somebody's there, I could potentially kill them too. When it comes to right versus wrong, truth versus error, Jesus said to those Jews in John chapter 8, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Someone says, but I don't know it. Can I know it? John 7 verse 17 If any man wills to do his will, listen that carefully, wills to do his will, he shall know concerning the doctrine whether I speak or whether it is from God or whether I speak on my own authority. Oh yeah, you can can listen, you can understand, and you can know. But somebody says, well, I'm just going to take whatever the religious leaders tell me. You know, there's always going to be uh, somebody who's an authority and he's going to tell me what to believe. Oh, you know, I, I trust Tony. I think he'll tell me the truth. You know what? I can be wrong just like anyone else can. And you know what? Some religious leaders are not serving God. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 13, Paul said, For such are false apostles, deceitful workers, transforming themselves into apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan himself transforms himself into an angel of light. Therefore it is no great thing if his ministers also transform themselves into ministers of righteousness. You see, there's people who will look like they are sheep, but they're actually wolves in sheep's clothing. What about the religious world in which you and I find ourselves? There's churches dotting this city all over, and some of them teach things 100% contrary to what is taught here. Paul encountered that in Romans 10. Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they may be saved. I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For they, being ignorant of God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted themselves to the righteousness of God. Are there people with zeal who are singing in their churches this morning and are preaching and teaching things with the fervor that they have all they've gotten 
Sure. Does that mean they're correct? No. This son of the prophets went out into the field. He was looking for food. And he brought in wild gourds. Many well-intentioned people, confident in that they are teaching wholesome teaching, are actually providing poison. Good intentions do not always guarantee success. Second lesson, one poisoned ingredient can destroy a good stew. Now you think about that. One poisoned ingredient. Some of you may be making desserts for tonight. If you choose to use salt rather than sugar in your pies, I guarantee you that we'll all know it. I guarantee you next year we won't be eating your pies. One bad ingredient. You say, you mean just one? Listen to 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 6. Your glorying is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? It doesn't take a whole lot. Do not be deceived. Evil company corrupts good habits. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 33. I don't know if you realize it or not. Do you know that 98% of rat poison is good food? Only a very small portion is the poison. When Paul was writing to the Galatians, the church there didn't have people teaching everything that was false. They really had just changed a small part of it. And he said in Galatians 1 and verse 6, I marvel that you're turning away so soon from him who called you into the grace of Christ to a different gospel, which is not another, only there are some who would trouble you and would pervert the gospel of Christ. They just change a little bit of it. And say, well, how much do you have to change? In Genesis chapter 3 verse 4, Then the serpent said to the woman, You shall not surely die. Just insert one little three-letter word, and how does it change the message? Ecclesiastes chapter 9, particularly verse 18. I want to call attention to what Solomon observes. Wisdom is better than weapons of war, but one sinner destroys much good. All those those little herbs, those little bitty small things, let's cut them up, let's put them in the stew. I don't know what else was in it, but I know that ruined it. The church has to be aware of those who would introduce error, who would introduce poison into the body of Christ. And you know, God had a plan for that. He told Titus through Paul to ordain elders in every city as God had given him charge. And he specifically directs him in verses 16 through 18 
but shun profane and idle babblings, for they will increase to more ungodliness, and the message will spread like a cancer. Hymenaeus and Philetus are of this sort, who have strayed concerning the truth and saying that the resurrection has already passed and overthrow the faith of some. You've got to be careful of what people teach. Third lesson, you need to be careful where you're searching for your food. There are some places where you know that you can trust the food and you can trust the people who are providing the food. There are some people that you cannot trust and I am fearful, brethren, that many of us have allowed ourselves to embrace the teaching of those that we know that are false. In Jeremiah, excuse me, chapter 8 and verse 9, he looked at these false prophets and says, The wise men are ashamed, they're dismayed and taken. Behold, they have rejected the word of the Lord, so what wisdom do they have? If you have someone out here who tells you this is where you ought to live, but they don't believe what God says, then forget them. What wisdom do they have? 1 John 4, 1, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits where they have God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. 2 Corinthians 13, 5, he says, Examine yourselves as to whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. What he's saying is, You need to be careful who you listen to, but you also need to be careful about yourself. Is it possible that I have listened to someone or come up with my own ideas and I'm not following God correctly? Two or three years ago, I was asked to speak at the Memphis School of Preaching alumni banquet. And... uh, I asked, what do you want me to say? And they said, say something that would benefit the students and help remind the alumni why they are there. And so I immediately thought, well, the School of the Prophets, Memphis School of Preaching, I thought those those two things go together really well. And I thought about the School of the Prophets and about this institute incident of the death in the pot. And I know while these young guys are in school, there's a lot of fun things that goes on. But there's also some guys who do some things that you learn pretty soon. You don't trust them. And I made the point, I said, you know, a few years ago, if some of you guys were here and you made a stew and you made a stew, everybody got sick. Next year, you don't get to be the guy that makes a stew. In fact, after that, you remember him as the guy that you don't eat their stew. Do you know, spiritually speaking, that if I am so careless with my study of the Word of God that I get up and I teach error, then pretty soon you develop the name. You don't want to listen to that person. Oh yeah, there's some preachers that are not invited to speak in a lot of places because of their carelessness in the handling of the Word of God. Proverbs 22.1 said, A good name is to rather be chosen than great riches and loving favor rather than silver and gold. You build a reputation 
What kind of reputation are we going to build? Is it going to be somebody who is careless or careful as we approach the Word of God? Number five, the knowledgeable man of God, that is Elisha, put flour or meal, depending on which translation, into the stew to neutralize the poison. I will remind you the power is not in the flour or the meal. The power is not in Elisha. The power was in doing what God had said to be done. You have to realize that the only thing that can neutralize error is the truth. In Titus chapter 1 verse 9 holding fast the faithful word as he has been taught, that he may be able by sound doctrine both to exhort and convict those who contradict. For there are many insubordinate, both idle talkers and deceivers, especially those who are of the circumcision, whose mouths must be stopped, who subvert whole households, teaching things they ought not for the sake of dishonest gain. We've got to take God's word and you've got to be able to, by this sound doctrine, address those who teach error. Well, now let's bring it all together. The world today faces a lot of death in the pot with regards to spiritual teachings. We face a lot of challenges and God's word is the only cure for that. The cure must be supplied and applied before we can eat it. I want you to listen to 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 2. He says, as newborn babes desire the pure milk of the word that you may grow thereby. What a powerful lesson that we learned from Elisha that there's death in the pot, but there's a way to have wholesome food, good food, God's food. If you're here this morning, you're not a Christian, we want to encourage you, urge you to become one. We want to urge you because you believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, that you repent of your sins, confess your faith in Him, and be baptized. Everything is ready for you. Are you ready to be baptized? If you're a Christian walking with sin in your life and you know you need to be restored, you know what you need to do, we beg with you, we plead with you this morning, make your decision. We're going to sing now, number 655. Would you come as together we stand and sing?